Okay, so I read that verse right there, Proverbs 17, 6. One, I just really like it. It's just been a proverb that I've liked over the years. And two, it just really fits kind of what I want to do for Bible study tonight. So I want to talk about stewardship of the family. So it says one thing we got to teach out in Peru, and I really enjoyed teaching um, this one. Uh, I enjoyed, so, you know, when we do the teaching out there sometimes, you do a kind of a mix sometimes of theology and then some practical things, and this one was a lot more practical, but it was an enjoyment to really teach this one, and so I hope it would be a benefit and encouragement for us. Hopefully it might even produce some questions and, and some good conversation uh, in regards to this topic of stewardship in the family. But uh, let me, let me get, let's ask you a question at the beginning and, and get some different thoughts here. Uh, what do you normally think when you hear the word steward? What, is that, what does that kind of idea, what does it signify? If I, if I call someone a steward of something. Okay, a keeper. Maybe flesh that out. A keeper, what does that mean? They keep something. What's another word? If I said, that's the steward of, you know, such and such business, or steward of this, steward of that, keeper of the house, you know? Yeah, like a manager. Okay, there we go. So, what what else? Temporary caretaker. Okay, a caretaker. There you go. Yeah, getting really, getting kind of to the heart of it, right? So, when we, when we talk about stewarding something, and maybe you more often think about this in terms of money. I think this is what helps me think of it. Um, you think of stewarding money, being a keeper of money, a manager over money, uh, a caretaker over something, right? You usually get that idea of someone who has been put in charge to watch over something or someone, or maybe both, in order to see it continue to remain stable and Typically, if you're a good caretaker, you're a good manager, you're a good steward of something, you also cause something to flourish, you cause it to grow, you know, you, you inherit it at one point, and then down the road, that thing ends up growing, and so when you hand the thing back, it's like, oh, wow, you did a really good job with this thing that you were given as a steward. And so, when we think about stewardship then, we often think about it with money and a bunch of other things. And those are all good things, right? We could do a Bible study of stewarding money, and we've sort of done that in the past before. Uh, we could do a Bible study about stewarding all sorts of different things. But why do you think stewardship in the family should, at least in my own opinion, should be number one on our list? And what in your mind would make stewarding your family the most important? Okay, that's a great answer, right? It's the most valuable thing entrusted to you. That's right. That's a great one too, right? What else? A guide. Say again? A guide. Yeah, okay. I mean, you're, you're leading the next generation. Yes, I mean, that's very important. You could lead, you're going to lead the generation somewhere, right? Well, I think all, those two answers, I think, are, I mean, there's more answers than that. But I think those two answers that my wife and Nick gave, I think, are, are probably two sides of the same coin. Why is it so important for us to know how to steward our families? Well, like, why should we give our, our attention to that? Brethren, because do you view your family as the most important resource that God has given you to steward, right? 
do you see yourself as a kind of manager, you know, or a keeper of something, or someone who's been put in charge to, to do, be a caretaker of something, not just so that it, you know, the status quo remains, you know, so to speak, where you just get something and you make sure it doesn't go down in flames, but you're actually given something in order to shape it and to mold it and to, you know, use the, a money analogy, turn a profit on it. And do you see your family like that? Or even if you don't even necessarily have a family, do you, do you see that as a, just this, a biblical idea of how important the family structure and the family unit and how much emphasis God puts on the family? And I think that's really important for us to think about as we talk about this tonight, about stewarding the family. Brethren, I want you to be exhorted and encouraged in light of some of these principles we're going to talk about to be a good steward of your family because it really is the most important thing that you have. If you're going to put a cash value on something, right? I can take our church camera and you can go look it up on Amazon or you know Google and find the cash value of that kind of thing, right? And it's not very expensive anymore. Now, if I took my, my son or I took my wife and I told and I asked you, can you guys put a cash value on that person? Who in here is going to put a cash value on that person? And it's almost, that sounds kind of like a threat too, like who's going to do it? I don't mean it like that, but you wouldn't, you know? Would you put a cash value on your wife, right? Nobody would. Manny wouldn't on his kids. Nick wouldn't on his wife. None of you, even on your best friend, would put a cash value upon them. And brethren, the reason for that is something like money, which helps us to quantify the value, so to know how much something costs, right? Money, even money itself, cannot put a value on an image bearer of God, especially as it relates to your family. And so um, I think that's important for us to think about because, yes, brethren, we could be good stewards of all sorts of things, money. We could be stu good stewards of jobs. We could be good stewards of, you know, things. Maybe said of us, we were good stewards of our people, good stewards of our family before everything else. And I'll tell you what, if we can get this one down, the others will follow. Right there, there's never been a good steward of a family, or a good a, a good a man in a family who is a good steward of his children and his wife, or a, a mother or um, a wife who was a good steward of a, her husband and her kids, or even people in the church who were good stewards of their church family, who are not good stewards in these other areas. And it, it's funny; it reminds me of this principle that uh, I learned uh, just being in Chick Fil A and thinking about business in general is. You know, they always say you got the three P's in business. You got people, product, and then you have processes. Well, brethren, what's the most important thing in all three of those things? Well, it's the people because you need people to run the processes and you need people to make the money. So at the end of the day, that's how God's hardwired the world. And we need to be able to see that kind of thing for ourselves to understand. Stewarding our family is of utmost importance for us because it is the most valuable thing God can possibly give us in this life. And two, brethren, we are leading and guiding our family down the road to some end. Whether you know it or not, it's happening. And we want to make sure, like Jess said, that when we're thinking about not only our own family right now, our kids right now, but we're thinking about our kids' families and our kids' kids' families, that we know that we're setting them up for success. We're putting them on a trajectory down the, down the right road to, to, to hit some desired end. And obviously, the ultimate desired end for us would be faithfulness, right? Our, our kids, our families, loving the Lord, generations to come, as the psalmist will speak, who love the Lord. So that's what I want to deal with tonight.
Now, I'm gonna, we're going to just deal with this with some simple principles. We cannot cover everything tonight. These principles can't be fully covered in themselves. This is more just a general, here's some, I think these are very important principles for us. If we were going to say, all right, stewardship of my family, most important thing that I possibly have in this life, how do I do that? What things do I need to have in my toolbox, so to say, to be able to shape and mold and get my family where it needs to be and then hopefully set my family up for future success down the road? So we're going to go through a few of these. All right. And they're also in no particular order. Well, except, okay, let me, let, me, let me restate that. This first one is in particular order, and the rest, not so much. But this first one uh, really deals with rightly ordering our priorities, or you could say having a right order of love. So if you guys want to turn to Matthew 10. Now, Nick had brought this text up on Wednesday. And so I think this text is one of these first principles we need to have if we're going to ask ourselves, how do I steward my family rightly? Okay, we need to begin here. Back in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34. Does someone want to read 34 to 39? Who's there? And loud and proud? So when we had when we had gone through this passage on Wednesday, what were what was one of the main points Nick was trying to drive home to us in regards to our loyalties and where our hearts ultimately lie? What 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 was the point Nick was trying to make to get us to see? Was he trying to get us to see that we ought to just hate our family just to hate our family? No. What was he trying to get us to see? Why would Jesus make such a radical statement? Bingo, right? The supremacy of Christ and his value, which because of his ultimate value, it, 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 it's not even like a suggestion. Christ's value and supremacy actually demands something of you. If I am going to be yours, which is going to be of utmost value, then I demand your utmost loyalty, your, your, your commitment, your, your first priority, me. And so you may be kind of like, okay, why is that such an important thing? If we're, gonna, we're talking about stewarding the family, why are we beginning here with something like... Uh, having a rightly ordered priority towards Christ being supreme in our life. Well, because brethren, what you don't want to do is try to serve your family really well and steward your family really well, but you don't have Christ as utmost importance in your family, right? Christ is not supreme in your own life. Here you are trying to lead your family, guide your family, raise them up the right way, and what, you're, what, what you end up doing is you exalt your family to a place that it ought not to be, and 
and your family doesn't end up falling under the supremacy of Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ, where when it comes to one's fidelity is, how am I to steward my family? How am I to lead them? How, how are we as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives to interact with one another? Well, brethren, the, the thing you have to begin with first is to say, Christ is of utmost importance, and family always has to come behind Christ. And so, obviously, when it comes to discipleship, sometimes that means there's a rift that gets created in family. But we can understand this principle in more broader application, right? If we don't have a rift within our family, you know, hopefully none of you have rifts right now with your wife or your kids. But it also helps us to think, okay, when it comes to my loyalties to them, my loyalty to my family has an end. It's not this absolute, no questions asked loyalty. At the end of the day, my loyalty is with Christ. And then because my loyalty is with Christ, well, obviously, as we're going to see as we go through this, Christ has some specific commands and desires as how do I treat my family, right? It's not like that thing gets removed or obliterated by following Jesus. But brethren, rather, if we're going to begin down the road, we got to make sure that we're beginning down the road pointed in the right direction and we have the right thing with us, and that's Christ. Christ needs to be supreme in our home. Christ needs to be supreme in our relationships with our, with our kids, our relationship with our wife or our husband. And we need to have that mentality of, if I'm going to try to steward this thing well and grow it and mature it, well, I need to know who has ultimate authority and say so to do such a thing. And so, brethren, don't let your family have the ultimate say so in this, where you give to the dictates and to the whims and to the, you know, uh, ever, ever moving emotions and feelings of your kids or your wife or your husband. You need to go, the scripture. Christ himself is supreme, and I need to make sure that I follow him before I do anything else. And so we need to have that kind of rightly ordered priority. But I want us to see, okay, there's that. But then we also have, uh, you know, it, it's not like the Bible says that to paint some negative picture of the family. The Bible also has a positive image for what we ought to do, and, and, has, a, and it has a positive image, and, 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 and has a... Uh, a lot of weight and a, and a lot of, uh, it, it just, it holds a lot of importance of the family itself. So go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, if someone gets there, read verse 8. For his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay. So give me a summation of what that verse is saying in your own words. <coughs> and without reading it again. <laughs> but just, you know, what is what is what is Paul telling Timothy there? Right. I mean, that does that not does have you guys ever? I mean, I know you guys have read that before. Probably most of you have through Bible reading read First Timothy five eight. But I often come to this and I try to just take a second to really think about the. I mean, that's a. You realize how serious of a uh, of a 
charge Paul lays at someone's feet if they fail to take care of their family? I mean, you hear that. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, right? He has denied the faith. I mean, that's what it says. He has denied the faith and is worse. (laughs) Brethren, he's worse than an unbeliever. I mean, that is quite the charge. So when we think about Jesus' words back in Matthew chapter 10, were you thinking, wow, Jesus lays such a strong claim upon, you know, following him. He says you got to, even if it looks like hate towards the world because you have to deny uh, your family in, in giving ultimate loyalty to Christ and not ultimate loyal, loyalty to family, I mean, that's a heavy charge. But then you get something like this and you say, okay, Christ charged to us with the cost of discipleship, does not obliterate any obligation towards the family. In, in fact, Paul comes here and says, well, if you don't provide for your own, especially those in your own household, he says you're, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Brethren, the reason I'm trying to lift both of those up to you is to say, we, we want to hold both of these together and, and see how if Christ gets put as supreme, He's number one, He's there at the top, We need to see then what Christ inserts right beneath him, right? If Christ is in slot number one, he's at the top. What comes right under uh, beneath him is of priority, of main importance for you. It's taking care of your family. And so we we, want to be able to see those things and understand, okay, Christ's call to discipleship. We got to understand at the end of the day, my heart is over to Christ. Christ alone, at the end of the day, loyalties have to always be towards Him. But if I'm going to loyally follow after Christ, He also then tells me through Paul, take care of your family. You know, we say it in the way of the title, right? Steward your family, right? Make sure you take care of the members, especially of your own household. Otherwise, that charge gets laid at our feet, brethren, that we're, we're operating in such a way that He says, you're operating worse off than an unbeliever. I mean... We don't want that kind of thing. Who wants that kind of thing? So, wanted us to start off with those because we need to have rightly ordered priorities. Our family cannot get to the top where it dictates everything. But brethren, just because we put Christ there does not mean we have no obligations or uh, nothing that we have to do for our family. In fact, brethren... In, the Bible comes in and it's like it, it's like it sanctifies it and tells you, okay, here's how you put of, of really importance of your family, but without making it God, but putting it right under beneath Christ's feet to where, man, stewarding our family is such an important thing for us to think about. So we want to begin there. If we're going to do that, brethren, you need to have rightly ordered priorities. And so to do that, you need to hold Christ up is supreme, like that text there in Matthew. But then, brethren, if Christ is supreme, you need to hear what he says about stewarding your family and go, wow, that's important. So maybe if I haven't been doing that well, man, I need to pick up my cross and and follow after Christ and what he tells me to do. And one of the things he tells me to do when I pick up my cross is to steward my family well. So we got to have those rightly ordered priorities. So then... Second, and getting into uh, these next couple, okay, what are, what are some things then that ought to flow 
from that? What are some things that we ought to do and can do that will hopefully help us to steward our families well and get to our desired end? So one of these I put down here, I would say, is you want to steward your family with diligence. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then whoever can, can somebody begin Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 4, I want you to read verse 4 to verse 9. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, whenever you have it, go ahead and read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. So a couple questions as we look at this passage here. All right. So what is the what what is the main uh, what is the main thing in these verses that Israel is commanded to teach their children, and it's right there in in verses four and five. What's the main thing that parents are told they need to bring up their children in, and raising up their children and teaching them these things? What's the main words they need to teach them? Yes. That's right. That those are the words, right? So verses 4 and 5 are the words, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then verse 6, and these words that I command you. Well, the most immediate words is what he just told them in verses 4 to 5. And so here, as we think about, okay, we want to be diligent in this kind of thing. We need to first off recognize the thing that we need to be diligent in. And brethren, this is so key. This is so important. because. It's, it's first, it's, it's stated in a way that it's making a, a statement of fact. It's, it's, it's God claiming something, right? And God is saying this. He's saying, you know, hero Israel. Let's roughly translate that so it makes some sense to us. My people, God's people, listen, right? So he's speaking to you too, right? You may not be Old Testament Israel, but you are God's people, right? This applies directly towards you. Hero Israel, what does he say about himself? The Lord, our God, right? The Lord, think about that, our God, collectively, our God. The Lord is one. Now, you could just translate the Lord, our God, the Lord, and then one. But the idea of it is this, brethren. The Lord being one means you only have one Lord. Singular love and devotion to only one God, and that is Yahweh. It's the Lord, which obviously getting fleshed out for us in the New Testament is Christ, right? We have one Lord. We have one God that we serve. And so if we're going to be diligent in this, we need to be diligent on this particular truth that begins right here, which means, brethren, as, as you think about stewarding your family with diligence, we need to be diligent about this truth, that we would gather our family around, that we would gather even us together as brothers and sisters in the Lord in the church and to remind ourselves by way of teaching 
and of encouragement and by exhortation to say, the Lord our God, right? To look at each other, right? To, to be able to look at, I mean, how many times have you done that to not get embarrassed? Like you look at your brother in the faith, your sister in the faith, and you say, isn't our God great, right? And, and you call each other to serve our God together. Like, brother, let's serve our God together. Manny, let's serve the Lord together. Or you pull your family, your wife aside, your husband aside, your kids aside, and you say, family, let's serve our God. And I think that's super important. Because this is what we want to be diligent in. We want to be diligent in teaching and leading our families in the way that God has made a claim upon us, our house, our church, us as a people. And we want to be diligent with that in, in mind. God is our God. He's not just, you know, my, the Lord is not just my God and, you know, He doesn't really think anything about my kids or my wife. No, 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 no. In the Osuna household, the Lord says, the Lord, our God. And we can tell each other that. This is our God whom we serve. And so, brethren, you want to come in with your family and be diligent and say, this is, this is our God. This, you know, to, 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 I tell Jackson, you know, you, this is your God. This is who we pray to. This is who we worship. This is who we sing to. And then notice what he says here on how we are to do this. How can we be diligent in order to do this? Well, he tells them there in 6, he begins to flesh these out. And he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And here's the primary way we do this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And rather than just obviously this you always have the word before you, but the primary way we do this is to teach. Now, that's a very interesting word right there, to teach. If you guys would go look at that word right there, it's, it's a word that gets used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of sharpening or, you know, you guys have read it in the Psalms. You, you know when we read the Psalm that God has wet his sword? What does that mean? You know, God's wet his sword and bent his bow. What does that mean, God's wetting his sword? I remember Nick, I don't know if it was a Bible. Yeah, sharpen. Oh, you guys remember? Great. Right? It's, it's to sharpen. That's the same word right there. When he says, you shall teach them, it, it, it has this idea of literally you could say, you, sh you shall sharpen them diligently. Like you're wetting a sword, sharpening up a sword, getting an arrow prepared for battle, getting a sword ready to do battle. And brother, what a great image for us to think how we ought to do this with our kids. We want to be diligent in stewarding them. Then we need to be preparing them for something. We need to be taking our, our family and we need to be sharpening them up. And what are we to be sharpening them up with? What's going to make them successful in conquering in battle? What do you sharpen them with? The word. And specifically those words in verses four to five. Which means, brethren, how do you make a sword sharp? Do you just take your sword and go, one wet, two wet, good to go? No. I mean, none of us in here have done the medieval thing of going down to the blacksmith and getting our sword sharpened. But what, how, how many times do you think he's got to do it? Yeah, who knows the number, right? Because none of us do that. But a lot. You don't go one, two, done. Eh, that's not going to be a very... You might have a club in battle, but you don't got a sword. But brethren, that's the whole point. 
How often then, how frequently, how constant do we need to, in order to be, if we want to be diligent the way the scripture says, how often do we need to be sharpening our wife and our husband in the word and our kids in the word? Constantly. (laughs) Constantly. And here's why. If we do it, we will conquer. I mean, isn't that like how Jess said it? We're going to send our kids off for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Amen. We pray that all the time. Brethren, if they're going to go out, though, into battle, like God's sword does or God's arrow does, and we want it to be successful in, in, in bringing victory, then we got to sharpen constantly. But here's that truth you want to come back to all the time. The Lord our God. You bring your family around. You bring your wife around. You get your husband to get everyone down in there. Church, this is why it's important we get together. Because we got to hear this over and over again. Our God, the Lord, our God, He's one. Singular devotion to Him. And if we'll follow that word of giving singular devotion to this God, the one who says He's our God, puts a claim upon all of us, man, brethren, if we do that constantly, we'll be sharp. And you can imagine your husband, he's going to be a sharp man who's successful in battle, successful in leading the way. Husbands, you're going to know, i got a sharp wife. She is successful in leading the battle, in leading the victory in the home. And you can know, my kids really are going to be shot out into the world as what? As arrows, that quiverful, shooting them out, successful in battle. Brethren, that's how Israel was supposed to conquer. If they wouldn't do that for their children, they were going to become like what? They were just going to become like good old Canaanites. And they did. But not for us, brethren. Not for us. We want to be diligent, which means, brethren, we've got to be sharpening one another. And so the question is, when do we do that? Well, we do it all the time, right? That's what the, the verses say. <laughs> when do you do it? Well, you do it <laughs> literally every waking moment that you possibly can. Now, listen, I'm not saying 24-7, right? you got to sleep. Get some sleep. Um, it's also good to, like, eat and do those things. But, brethren, you, the whole point of it is this. Don't think... To sharpen or wet and get and get my family built up well in the faith means I gotta have the perfect setting. You know, we you know it's not like you know you gotta set up the pulpit in the middle of the room. The kids gotta be sitting there with their suits on, ready to go, ready to watch. All right, we're gonna sing three songs, and then you know Jackson, you're gonna come up here and lead us in the opening prayer, and then you know like brethren, the whole and listen, if you do that, I don't care. We do that sometimes, but listen. The idea is you take whatever moment that is to your advantage and you take it. Just like if you were going to get something prepared for battle, brethren, you take any advantage you get to get that weapon ready at any time. You're sitting there at the dinner table. Hey, why don't we recite Psalm 2 together? You know, I know Manny does this all the times with the Psalms that, they, that they've learned in song and that they've memorized through singing it all the time. Hey, let's just do this. I mean, brethren, you take whatever moment you can to be able to sharpen and wet your family so that they would be successful, that they would conquer, and that you would conquer. So there's our first one, diligence in this kind of thing. Second is care. So I have two sections, so I got two doubles of verses. So the first pair, I want someone to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, and then Psalm 128, verses 1 through 4. And now, as you guys are flipping there, so as we get into a few of these, some of these are very applicable to everybody in here. There's not really a whole lot of distinction that needs to be made. But on some of these, 
some distinction has going to have to be made because not everyone in here is a man. Not everyone in here is a woman, believe it or not. Uh, and so it's important that as we read some of these, especially with our how do we steward our family well, we want to steward them with care. That's going to look a little bit different for both men and women as we think about the family. So this first grouping of verses, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 and Psalm 128, 1 through 4, I want to deal particularly with men here in the room first. And then, ladies, I want to address you with the next set of verses and encourage you in this as well. So someone read that first uh, set of verse of uh, 25 to 27, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay. Yeah, so let's read both, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So did someone read Psalm 128, 1 through 4. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hand. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Amen. So first to the men, I want us to think about a few things in both of these sections. So I want you to think about that text there first in Ephesians, right? Because the, the command right here is, is pretty simple and straightforward, but it's not fleshed out a whole lot, right? Paul just tells us, this is basic, practical teaching. Husbands, you know, to the men... Love your wives. How? How are you to love your wife? Well, this is the tall charge right here. As Christ loved the church, specifically, and gave himself up for her, that, here's the purpose of it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So when it relates to care then, stewarding the family, especially for men, and this is something that men, you got as you have boys, something you're going to teach and lead your boys in hopefully seeing you do and teaching them what they ought to do as, Lord willing, they go out one day and they, and they marry off and they get a wife and they have kids. Is if we want to think about how are we going to steward our family the best? How are we going to be diligent in, in, in sharpening them up and, and preparing them? Brother, I think this is such an important one right here. And that's to care for them well. Uh, because it, there's often a tendency, and, th- and this just happens, I think, with us as men, to, we want to, we, we, we think success sometimes, meaning implement a bunch of rules in the home, you know, almost kind of like a drill sergeant in the home, right? Everyone's going to stand to attention, and we're going to, our day is going to just be plotted out, this, 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 everyone's going to, you know, line up and there's not going to be kind of any like emotion or any kind of thing showing it. It almost just becomes almost like this formality uh, where you just want things to, to fall into place in your home just for the sake of formality. But, but brother, we don't want to think about stewarding our family well in the same way that we like steward money because money doesn't have feelings and, and nor does a house or your car, right? Your people have feelings. Your people are image bearers. Your people are fluid just like you. And so the first thing I think we ought to think about is we want to care for our families well. As we think about our wife, especially with that verse, we think about our children. Brethren, you want to think about caring for them 
in the way that is described here in Ephesians and there in the psalm. How did Christ care for us as the church? What did He do? Did He give us 20 bucks and wish us the best of luck? No, He gave Himself up for us. One, to sanctify us, to, to present us in splendor and glory. And now listen, if that's what you want, and that's what we're commanded to mimic, is you love your wife, obviously by extension the rest of your family, the way that Christ loved the church, well, brethren, you got to lay yourself down for your family. I mean, you got to give up of yourself, which means if you're going to lay your life down, I'm not saying die for your family, maybe, but if you're just going to give up of yourself for your family, friend, how many things does that mean where you give up your own likes and your own wants and your own desires and your own particular taste for things in order to make sure that your wife and by extension your children are being watered with the word and being sanctified by it and then being brought to splendor. I mean, you're going to have to do that kind of thing. That kind of care is going to require ultimately what Christ did, sacrifice. It's going to cause you to sacrifice things that you either want or you want to do or want to have in order to say there's a better end than maybe what I particularly want. There is a better end for my wife. There is a better end for my kids. And I'm responsible to see them to that end. Christ was responsible for the church. He was responsible to lay his life down and to give up of himself so that the church would be sanctified and the church would be put, to, put forth in splendor. And he most certainly will do that. Well, man, we got to think the same way. That's, that's what we've been given these wives for. That's what we've been given these children for, is to sanctify them and to, and, and to present them to the Lord in splendor, in beauty, which means there's going to be some really hard work to do. There's going to be some dying to ourselves that we're going to have to do. There is going to be some sacrifice that is required. But this kind of thing, brother, needs to be done in, in, a, in a particular kind of way. It needs to be done with care or love, right? It, it needs to be done with someone who comes in and nurtures something, which is like why I love that language there of Psalm 128, right? There he says, Behold, thus shall be the man who fears the Lord. He's going to be happy, right? Why is he going to be happy? Because look at his family. They're flourishing, I mean, they're, they're not a withered out, crumpled up, dying off tree, right? It says that this one who fears God, he's not this stiff, stern, cold-hearted man. He's like what? Oh, he's like a gardener. He's like this really good gardener who has labored diligently by the Lord's command, like we were commanded to do earlier, right? To be diligent. But, but notice what all that sharpening and all that building up is doing within his household. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Brethren, is that how you think about your family and giving up of yourself for your family and leading them and guiding them and laying down yourself for them? And so that you would go, man, look at them flourish over there. Look at the fruit my wife has. Oh, it tastes good too. See your kids, they're these, these olive trees with the, the very thing of blessing, right? The oil that comes from them, this very 
essence of blessing you find in the Bible, to just be able to look at them and say, look at them. <laughs> I have given myself to, for that, for, for the fruit that's come out of it, because I have been diligent to hear God's command and to care for them. But brethren, to do it in a way where you cared for them like a gardener carries for, you know, cares for his plants and his vineyard. Yeah, at times does he have to prune to cut back and it's going to, you know, it's going to require time and growth. He's going to see some disease. Got to cut it out. Overgrowth, let's trim it up a little bit. You know, this thing's drooping to one side. Let's put a stick up like my dad would do for our, um, our pomegranate tree so it wouldn't, you know, just totally bend over, right? You got to think about that. But, th but there you are. You're having to do some hard things. You're having to lead. You're having to make tough decisions. But brethren, you're doing it because you go, I know this is the best thing for this. In order to be diligent to the Lord and to be diligent towards my family, oh, this is the best thing for them. Why, brethren? Because you're trying to, you're not trying to gain the glory. You're trying to say, look how beautiful they are. Look, look what God has done. And brethren, that's a promise for you. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed. Who what? Who fears the Lord. So, brethren, we 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 want to we want to be those kind of men, caring for our families well as we are diligent to bring them up in the Lord. Now, ladies, two verses. Titus chapter 2. Someone wants to read Titus 2, 4. And then 1 Timothy 5, 14. So if someone has Titus 2, 4, read it, and then 1 Timothy 5, 14 right after. First Timothy five fourteen. First Timothy five fourteen. If no one has it, I could read it too. So have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Okay. So ladies, as you guys think about because you're including this in stewarding your family, right? You're not just some, you're not some passive piece in all this. You play a very active role in this. The first thing for you to consider is one that may not be hard for anyone in this room right now, but probably at some point in your Christian walk, if you had been enculturated by our, you know, what modern day standards would tell us a woman should be, um, Titus 2.4 is one of these just amazing, you know, just condensing down how a woman cares for her family. And it also flies in the face of every modern day, uh, you know, source of wisdom as how can women best care for their families. And it just tells them, women, you're to love your husband and your children. You need to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And listen, ladies, this, this, is, really, this is really important for you because it, this, is, this is something that if you're going to steward your family well, one, you got to believe this is the path for you, that this is, right? And trust me, 
I don't stay home, you know, five days out of the week and take care of my kids uh, while my wife's off at work. But I have stayed home to watch my kids for a few hours. That's hard. And I also know how easy it is, though, to get into your mind like, when my wife or my husband gets home, I'm going to do something important after that happens. That can be the mentality. Like you're just managing a situation and you would really rather be off doing something else because in your mind you're convinced there is something more that I can do to care for all of us than maybe just even watching the very thing I'm told to care for. And so ladies, listen, you just you want to read this and believe this really is the path of how I can be diligent to obey the Lord and to care for my family well and to steward the thing I've been given well. Just believe that verse and then believe it with all your heart and don't listen to the, the, the talk of foolish people, right? Don't listen to it. Go to there and say, I'm to love my husband and my children. I need to be self-controlled, pure. I need to work at home. The home is where I'm going to be the best steward imaginable is in the home, and I'm going to submit to my husband so that God's word would not be reviled. I mean, just believe that. Like, really think that's where God wants me to be a good steward, in, and I will be if I accept it, and I do it, and I just take it, and I run with it. But more than that, one, you got to believe it. It's two, the reason you want to believe that and do that is because in doing so, you're showing your kids something, right, in all this. Like, you're modeling for them what you think about them, and then therefore about your family, right? You're putting a price upon your family the way that you model this to your family, right? If this kind of thing is done day in and day out, begrudgingly, with annoyance, with just a, a, an attitude that says, I cannot wait until I can go do something else, brethren, your kids are going to be taught diligently, and to put a value on the family, you know what the value is going to be? It's going to be low. It's going to tank like stock in the stock market. They're going to look at it and go, doesn't really seem worth the investment. Mom sure hated it. Dad sure came home and was really annoyed every time he got home. He just wanted to go sit on the couch. I mean, brethren, we, this one right here, especially for you ladies when you're home with the kids all day, this is why you got to embrace it with all your being so that even your own kids see it and go, Mom stewards the home with joy. I mean, she looks just as happy, maybe even more happy than dad does when he gets to go off to work. <laughs> and, ho and listen, hopefully, and hopefully you guys, I mean this too, because you're teaching this to your sons, you go off to work happy. I mean, seriously. But, but, but ladies, do you really think like, I'm going to wake up this morning and do my stewardship and I'm going to, I can't wait to, I know my husband, he wants to go make money selling chicken and he's happy to do it. I'm going to be happier staying at home taking care of these kids. But that's the thing that you want because God says, if you do that kind of thing, you're going to abound. You're going to abound. And you get that, that same language there in, in 1 Timothy of drawing us back in to it again. So I'd have the younger widows, what? Marry, bear children. And then this is a very important thing. Because ladies, in order to really grab on to that truth as well, that man, I want to own that with all of my heart, here's the title that God gives you in all this, right? You got a job, a very serious one too, right? We were talking about being a good steward. You're a manager, you're a keeper. Well, what does he say you're a manager and keeper of? The household, 
and we've talked about this in a study before. This is someone who is a, for lack of, this is a household, I hate to use the word for it. This is a household dictator, if you could roughly translate that. Now, listen, what I don't mean by that is what we think of dictators as cold, you know, ruthless. I'm not saying anything. What's that? That is it. Yeah, you want to be a bad dictator in this way. A good dictator is cold and ruthless. A bad dictator loves and is care. But, but, but the, the whole point in that is Paul is just trying to tell them, like, you're the ruler of the home. Right? Obviously, we understand headship. The husband's over the wife. Wife help take care of, manages the things at home. But if you embrace your calling in this to care for your home this well, I mean, take that as just a sign of honor that God gives you. He calls you guys managers of your homes. There's the ruler of the home right there. I mean, you wouldn't want to walk around with your name tag. Like, I wouldn't want to do this. My name, you know, director of operations, and then go around acting like I hate what I do. I mean, ladies, you, you have been given such an amazing... God has said... This is what you're stewarding over. I mean, this is like the parable of talents right there. Here's some of your talents right here. And you don't want to be like that servant who just goes and buries his talents because they think his master is a harsh master, not worth doing it. Please believe this kind of thing. God's given you this amazing task. It's really, it's a calling. This is a job, if we could put it in modern 21st century language. But a job in the sense of this is what you ought to give your life to that will give you meaning in your life. Caring for your family. And once again, we could apply the same logic that was applied for the men. If you do this kind of thing, you will be called blessed. When you go read the Proverbs 31 woman, she is this kind of woman. She's diligent for her family and her people. And then it says that her husband gets up, goes to the gates and says, man, I'm blessed. I am blessed. My wife, she is a good ruler of my home, bringing me blessing. And so you want to care for your family, you want to sharpen up your children, ladies, love caring for your family. Own the title. Own your job. (laughs) Do it with pride. So third, this one's going to be enculturating. So go back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read Ephesians 6, 4. And then somebody read Deuteronomy 4, 9. Ephesians 6, 4 and Deuteronomy 4, 9. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> Who's got Deuteronomy 4.9? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest you depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children. Okay. So based upon those two verses, what, what's the kind of thing you're, you ought to do with your family and specifically here with your kids with the Word of God? What are you trying to do with them, with the Word? Make them know. Yeah, you're trying to teach them, but you, it's more than just teach. You're not just telling them facts. Train. Yes, train, right? I like that word, to train them up. Now, this, is, this idea here in Ephesians 6 is very strong. This is, but bring them up in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This, is, uh, this idea right here is, is this idea of enculturation. What does it mean to enculturate somebody? Someone make that simple. Enculturation. Bring them up. 
Yeah, bringing them up. In, but but what does that but what does that mean to bring somebody up in something? Yes. <laughs> yes. Make something their identity, right? Right. If you're gonna get, you know, think about your job. You're gonna get enculturated at work. What do you have to do? You gotta learn how to be that kind of worker. You wanna you wanna be a plumber? Gotta be enculturated in plumbing. Can't just own the title. You gotta actually learn how to do it. You gotta own it for yourself. It needs to become part of you. And this was, the, this was the kind of thing that you would think of in Paul's own days. He's looking out at the people around him, especially these Romans. This is what they would do to their children. They would enculturate them in becoming Romans. You get born into a Roman family. You get taught from the minute you can be taught. You are Roman. This is what we do. This is what we eat. These are our customs. These are the kind of things that we like. These are the kind of things that we don't like. I mean, brethren, that's what it means to enculturate somebody. You are culturing them. You are taking the culture of Christianity and you are, you're just filling them with it. It's like when people tell you, you know, be careful with your religion. You don't want to indoctrinate your kids. Oh, yes, we do. We want to enculturate them to the brim till it's falling out, right? We want to do that because, brethren, everybody does that. Everybody in here, before you were a Christian, you had some kind of culture. You were enculturated in something. I liked heavy music. I was enculturated in it, brother. I loved it. My identity was wrapped up into it. Some of you sports, some of you whatever. But brethren, you had, you had something where it, you're, you're bound up in it. It's not just you were taught it. It's almost if like if someone were to tell you, it would have told you at the time, I'm going to take away your music. It's like, it hurts. It's like someone's taking a part of you. That's the kind of thing Paul is getting at there in, in Ephesians 6 chapter 4. You are to take your children, you're to take your family and enculturate them to be Christians. I mean, is that, is that the flavor of your home, right? Because you could do this a million ways, brother, but listen, this is the kind of thing that we want to practice. We get up in the morning, we're playing Christian songs. We're teaching our kids the Christian lyrics. We're telling them to love the Christian songs. We're telling them to read the Bible as their Bible. We're telling them to pray to their God. We're taking them to church to worship their God. We're teaching them, son, you see that man over there on the corner? Don't be like him. Fear Yahweh, and you won't be like that, right? At every waking moment, you are enculturating them in this culture of Christ, in the ways of Christ, in the thoughts of Christ, in, in all things Christ. It's like you have one brand and one logo you like, and it's Christ, and your kid's going to grow up to love that thing. You want to enculturate your children in this. And notice in, there in Deuteronomy what, what he's telling them then. Okay, how's part of the way you do this? Well, brethren, are you enculturating yourselves right now in Christianity? Because I'll tell you this, your children will only be enculturated as much as you are. So if the Bible only comes out at the dinner table on Sunday... If prayer only happens because it's the proper thing to do before you eat the meal, if you listen to one song just because, you know, you guys are having a bad day and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get everything set in order, brethren, that's not a great Christian culture. That's kind of a, that's a weak Christian culture. Brethren, you want the kind of culturation where it is, it's Christ all the time and it's Christ everywhere. They look, it's Christ. They hear, it's Christ. They see, it's Christ. So we want to ask ourselves that, are we enculturating in our own lives the kind of thing that we want for our kids? And brethren, if not, here, here's the easy fix. 
do it. It's like change it. Say no more. We're, we're, we're adopting the culture of Christ in our home. You look at your wife, your husband, and say, all right, we're changing course now. Everything's going to be Christ in this home because we want our kids in this. We love our children. We want Christ to be supreme in all of this. And brethren, that's the whole purpose. He says, take care, because if you forget, the coming generations are going to forget. But brethren, the, the, the whole goal is if you don't, if you keep your soul diligent in this kind of thing, you're not even going to just be teaching your own kids. Brethren, your own grandkids are going to be running around at your feet, and you're going to be teaching them. You're going to be passing on to them the knowledge, the taste, the smells, all the things that you enjoyed with the culture of Christianity, and you're going to be passing it on to them. And so we need to do that within our homes. And so you need to think, well, how can I do that? Well, brethren, you do what like Paul says. Is there anything true or good or beautiful or right? Does it point you to Christ? Then enculturate it in your home. And if it doesn't, get it out. It may not be sinful. It's not pointing me to Christ. Get it out of your home. Enculturate your family with the things that will point them to higher things, to heavenly things, and not get them down here focused on earthly things, about money in their house and all these different things. Brethren, you put things in your home that says, it better be pointing them to Christ and enculturating them this, or it's not worthy of my home. So we need to enculturate our children here. So last two things so we can wrap up. Discipline. So there's going to be a lot of these. I want to read them in, in, in a section again. One section and then another section. So, so I'm going to turn Proverbs 22.15 and Proverbs 13.24. So the first one is Proverbs 22, verse 15, and then Proverbs 13.24. And it really doesn't matter what order. If someone gets to one first, just let us know which one you're reading and then read it. Okay. And Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Brethren, why, why does the Bible make such, such a demand upon us to make sure that we discipline our children? What is bound up in the heart of a child? foolishness, right? And this would make sense with everything we've done so far. Why do you got to be diligent? Why do you got to care for them? Why do you got to enculturate them? Because, brother, your kids don't pop out of the womb just filled with, culture, you know, Christian culture and love of God and, and no, it just all, you know, they're just a fully matured, wise man or woman. It doesn't happen. And you don't need anyone to prove that to you. What comes out in the heart of a child if they are not shown the way and disciplined in the way? Folly, right? And then you think about what he says there in 13 as well. So you think about this section here in 1324. So he says, whoever then, right? So you can think about this. Okay, discipline needs to happen because folly is bound up in my child. Now, 1324 kind of rounds this out. If we're not going to do this kind of thing, what's going to be the result? Well, whoever spares the rod, what? Hates his son. But... He who loves him is diligent. Here's that word again. He is diligent to discipline him. So, brethren, we, we need to believe this one because this is a hard one. 
Because what I'm referring to here with discipline, obviously discipline can be thought of in a general category. Discipline can also include positive things, teaching and all these sorts of things. But what I really have in mind right here is what I would call corrective discipline, where you have to take your child who is not following the way, they're misbehaving, right? They're, they're, not, they're starting to walk off the path and go right or go left. And you know what the Bible says you need to do? You got to go discipline that. Why? Because that folly is bound up in his heart. And you know what you're doing with the discipline? You're driving the folly out of his heart. And this one, listen, this one is going to be like this. Maybe until the Lord returns. It is going to be, it's going to be a difficulty for Christians to do this sort of thing. And often, because many people, as they become Christians, or maybe they even had Christian parents before, parents who didn't discipline or who disciplined wrongly, right? And so what we got to be able to do, brethren, is just, is just we, we want to hear what the Bible, right? If we call ourselves Christians, then when the Bible says something, we do it, right? Is that what a Christian does? Bible says it, we do it. Bible says it, I believe it, right? That's our authority. So if the Bible comes here and says, listen, Folly's bound up in your child, so you got to discipline him because it's going to be for his good, right? That's, that's what the proverb ultimately says is that it's for his good. But that if we don't, it says that we're speaking something about our child. It says that we're hating our child. I mean, we got to believe that. If I'm not willing to discipline my child regardless of whatever baggage gets brought into my life that I got to work through. And I'm not denying that at all. I get it. Trust me, when we, when we talked about this one in Peru, this really struck a chord with those brothers there because those brothers dealt with very harsh parents. But we got to come to this and go, that's what God says. And not only, that's not what, it's not like God says it and then he just made it this like really painful, purposeless task. Well, God said it because it actually produces something. It's going to produce wisdom in the child that he stays the course, that he doesn't go off on the road. And so we need to come to it and say, whatever I think about this, even whatever it may have happened to me in growing up, whether I had no discipline or I had, or I had a harsh father and mother when it came to discipline, but then we got to come to this one and say, well, the Bible speaks very positively about discipline. And in fact, it is a command because it's bound up with the fate of our children. And so if we're not willing to listen to the Lord here, it's not like you're, yes, you're disobeying God. That's bad. Number one, that's bad. Number two, you're just telling God, now nah, I hate my child. Right? I hate my child. And brother, how do you feel about people who abandon their children? You ever met someone? I've met people at work before. I find out like they got a wife and a kids and they just left them. You're like, and you're like, okay with that? Like, how do you feel about those kind of people? Not great is the not great is the um, the shaved edge answer. Which listen, I would agree. You don't feel great for you men. It, if you love your children and your family, oh, it'll raise the temperature, and you got to control that. But it's because you recognize something so fundamentally wrong with that. Well, brethren, if we're not willing to raise our children up and discipline them, we're we're saying the same thing about our children that those people said about their children. We may not have left them physically. But we have left them for their good. We have said, nah, their good is not important to me because I won't discipline them. 
So, brother, listen, we got to believe these things. So let, let's hear a couple positive things then. I want us to hear a couple positive things, not just in like on a damper there. Um, Proverbs 29.15, if someone wants to turn 29.15, and then someone turn to 23.13-14, and then if you're going to read 13 and 14, you're also going to read verses 15 to 16, but I want you to stop at 14 before we read it, okay? I want someone to read Proverbs 29.15, Second is Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Pause, and then 15 and 16 when I tell you. So Proverbs 29, 15. Someone has it. A rod and, a rod and a rebuke give wisdom, but a child who gets his own ways brings shame to his mouth. So before we read the next one, you hear the positive statement about the rod, discipline here. What does it say it'll impart to the child? Brethren, do you believe that? Do you think, dude, I got to spank him for the fifth time today? That what I'm doing is imparting wisdom to him? I mean, seriously, though. Because it doesn't feel like you're imparting wisdom. It feels like it's just pain, and it feels like it's not fixing anything. But God says, it imparts, it doesn't just impart pain, discipline, it imparts wisdom. I mean, brethren, that's the whole point of the proverb right here, is to son, hear my words, and grow up in instruction, to gain wisdom, to, to have lady wisdom be your friend. Well, if you want wisdom to travel with your children the rest of their life, you've got to discipline them. It says it will, it will give wisdom. Your children are learning, brethren, and, th and this is an important thing. I remember hearing this the other day, and I've and now that I've now that I've had to discipline my own children for the last couple of years, and brethren, listen, even had to be corrected about it at times, is to have experienced this truth that your children crave structure, and you know how you give your children structure, discipline. You know what happens when you don't give your kids structure? Brethren, they're trying to figure out everything on their own and what's bound up in their heart. A bunch of folly. You know what they're going to always go into if you don't give them structure and discipline? Folly. Every time. They're not going to wind up on the other side good. <laughs> and if they do, it's only by God's grace and don't use it as an example because right? that typically doesn't happen. We got to come here and believe this kind of thing. That it imparts wisdom. I mean, what a wild thing. So who's got 23, 13 to 14? Twenty uh, Proverbs twenty three thirteen through fourteen. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, he will save his soul from shame. Okay, so th th this is a, this is another important point here, when it as it comes to discipline in the positive brethren, because listen, it's telling you what kind of discipline you're trying to offer, and notice. There's this real, this is a contrast here where I feel like the, the, the author here, probably if it's Solomon, he's like playing off the word on purpose. So in 13, look at 13, he says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not what? He won't die, right? What, what happens when you die? Where's your body go? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. You caught on really quick. It goes down to the grave. It goes to Sheol, right? 
So notice what he says where he says, don't hold it with him. Because if you strike him with this kind of rod that I'm telling you, he's not going to die and he's not going to go off into shale. But notice what he says in 14. If you strike him with the rod, what will you actually do? You're not going to send him to shale. You're going to keep him from the grave. Why? Because you'll keep him from folly. Folly will put him in the grave. Maybe physically, but brethren, always spiritually. You'll, your kids will go to the grave in folly. So this should be a good thing for us to say, listen, this is the kind of rod that's going to be instructed. It is not a rod of punishment, inflicting justice and vengeance and bringing down the evildoer and cutting him with the sword. That is not the kind of discipline God imagines or requires for your children and your family. The kind that he says is the one that keeps him from folly. How do you know? Because it's keeping him from the grave. Which is why he says, listen, if you strike him with the rod of discipline, don't let it hurt your soul. He, like, he's not going to die. Listen, I know that our culture doesn't want to believe this. Giving your kids spankings won't send them to the grave. Like, it won't. Even a hard spanking. Trust me, it will not send your kid to the grave. Your kids are resilient, Right? They, they are like chewing gum. It doesn't matter what you do. Like, it's not going away. Like, they're going to, they'll be fine. They're going to be okay. Because, brother, this is the kind of thing you're trying to give them is correction. Your discipline is formative even when it's corrective. You're trying to use a corrective hand to form them into something. Don't be a liar. That's a good thing, right? Don't be a thief going off and stealing don't go off and, and speak falsehood, right? Brother, you're doing these kind of things. And so he's reminding you, if you discipline in the way where you're trying to correct the behavior to form a behavior, brother, don't let it trouble your soul that you got to spank your child. Because I know that it can. I know that it does. Because I'm a parent too. I'm not saying that as someone who hasn't done that. It will. But then come back to here and say, look, he ain't going to die. She ain't going to die. And also... I'm trying to actually keep them from dying. Physically, yes. You want your kid going off into folly and you burying your own child. But also, brethren, most importantly, spiritually. Like David says, you will not abandon my soul to where? Shale. You'll keep me from the grave. You'll keep me from death. Death's arms will not have the final say over me, but it will if you pursue folly. And so, brethren, we want to be diligent in this in this kind of discipline. Because li listen to what is said right after here in, in 23. So go back to Proverbs 23, and we'll, we'll just kind of end right here. I'll, I'll just, I'll, we'll read one verse for the last one, and then we'll just, we'll, we'll pray so we don't, we don't go um, long. So this last one here in Proverbs 23. So 13 and 14, we read that, right? Don't withhold discipline. You strike him, he's not going to die. You strike him, you'll save his soul from the grave. Now, now in 15 and 16, you get this glorious picture of like what's come about. It's almost like you get the result painted for you. And so remember this and believe it. Listen, the proverb, and I, man, this is why I love the Proverbs. That I just, like, I always call my kid, like I call my boy's son all the time. And my dad did it for me, probably just because of habit, but too, I just love saying that, my son. So here 15 says, my son, if your heart's wise, my heart too will be glad. So notice what he's saying, man, if you grow up with a glad heart, meaning you've learned discipline, you've learned the true way, I'm going to be glad. Like your future happiness will be tied up in your children's. 
Your future joy is going to be tied up in their future joy in Christ. And then notice what he says in 16. There's a result that's been achieved. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Why? Because he didn't withhold the rod. He formed him, brethren. What did he impart to him when he corrected him? Wisdom. Now what's on, the, now what's on your child's lips? What's right? Wisdom is on their lips. Because the child's heart was filled up with wisdom and correction. And it was formed and it was molded. And so, brethren, like, look at that. Remember that and say, man, do you not want to experience that joy? Your kids are grown up. There they are enjoying the Lord, not because you enjoy the Lord. They enjoy the Lord. And now it's like the reverse has happened. You become the child. And now you, you draw joy off your children instead of them drawing joy off of you. I want that. I want to be able to say, my son, if your heart's wise, your dad's going to be glad in the future. That'll get me. Like, that's what I want. I want my children to have wisdom on their lips because I didn't withhold the rod for them because I loved them. Not because I hated them, but because I loved them. So as we end with this last point, and brethren, this is ultimately the end result that we want from this, is we want this to be perpetual, meaning we want our children's 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 children to know the Lord. As how Yahweh reveals Himself to Moses, He says, He has steadfast love for who? Thousands. So I want to read here a verse in Isaiah As we end, and then if there's any questions, we'll, we'll end, we'll pray, and then if there's any questions or anything in regards to those points, we're, let's, let's, we can talk about them, we can continue. So here is um, Isaiah 59, verse 21. And I want to read this, brethren, because I want you to understand this thing. I don't want to just impart this, this end goal, taking our families our wife, our husband, our children, our church, stewarding these precious things that we've been given well just because I like that or want that or because you may particularly like that or want that. Brethren, I want you to see what God, as He was looking forward to the new covenant, right? The thing that He desires for the children of believers, right? He wants them to have His words in their mouth. And I want you to hear this kind of thing. Isaiah 59, verse 21. And this, and this is a quotation of what God is saying here. This is the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your seed children, offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, brethren, for God to say something like that, you better believe God desires something like that, that our children and our children's children and for future generations who are yet unborn would have the words that have been put on our mouth be put into their mouth. So, brethren, take these principles... Take these things. Look at the people right around you. 
And listen, even if you don't have a wife or a husband or children yet, it doesn't matter. You still look at your people around you and say, they are of utmost value to me. How ought to I steward them well? Well, brethren, you can begin by giving yourself to these things so that that future blessing would come to us. So let's pray.